Hello, and welcome to Generation of 27, a podcast about the silver age of Spanish literature and about poetry and translation. I'm your co-host, Katya Noyce. This is Mark by my side. Do you want to introduce yourself, Mark? I'm producer Mark Pritchard. And he is doing a great job. I'm very excited as to how he's editing us because, believe me, I say like a lot. So today we are going to, what are we talking about? We're talking about a poem by a poet who's not actually a thought of a member of the generation of 27, Chilean poet Pablo Neruda. The name of the poem that we're discussing is Ode to Federico Garcia Lorca. And Neruda wrote this poem when he was a diplomat and stationed in Spain. And he became friends with the circle of poets that Lorca was part of, and I think became pretty enamored with Lorca, wouldn't you say? In a sort of straight guy to gay guy way, yes. And we see a lot of the levels of that friendship uh, in this poem. And Anna and I had really different interpretations of it, and it was surprising and kind of a lot of fun. Yeah, it was interesting to hear the way each of you was inspired by different aspects of the poem, but also uh, some of the things that you disagreed on. I'm glad you liked the disagreements, Mark. And um, it was, yeah, like I said, it was surprising. But I think where I personally learned a lot, which is one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, frankly, is I'm learning so much from Anna and her her trove of knowledge, is about metaphor. And we talked about the way Neruda uses just such luscious metaphor in this poem and the uses of metaphor in general in poetry. As well as a lot of Catholic imagery despite the fact that Neruda was a well-known communist and no doubt an atheist. So anything else we should say? I don't think so. Uh, Which translation are we going to be using today? Aha! We're using the translation from Jim Harrison Uh, It's in a wonderful book, Residence on Earth, and I recommend either you look for the links that Mark is going to post on the website, or that you get a copy of this book, or find it online. Okay, and you can have a copy of the poem next to you as you listen to Anna Hiller and Katja Noyes talk about Ode to Federico Garcia Lorca by Pablo Neruda. So you said you are really excited about this poem, and I'm just curious as to um, what what's making you so excited about it. Well, I love I love the passion in it. I love that it's a poet to another poet. Mm. I find it fascinating that it's this straight man in love with a gay man. And this is the way he expresses it. And he's grappling with that. Like, he can't really get next to Lorca in the way he knows Lorca gets together with other men. But he's still in love. He's Mm -hmm. in love with this man. And it helps me feel in love with Lorca myself because there's images 
that, well, I'll just shoot one out. When you fly dressed as a peach tree, to me that captures Lorca. And I'm really curious whether you feel he's, like any of this captures the Lorca you know, the imagery, Lorca's images, or whether this is Neruda's totally stumbling in the dark using his own language, trying to capture Lorca the best he can through his own Argo. Hmm. Well, my first impression of this poem was that it it felt like a struggle to me. Just if we look at, I mean, the first, if I could weep, if I could take out my eyes, mm. I would do it. Mm -hmm. um, that um, it's the, I, I want to go to, I want to go to grammar. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about teaching the conditional tense. Mm-hmm. And in order to teach the conditional tense, you have to teach the past imperfect subjunctive. Okay, bear with me here. So basically, it's like you have to teach people a new tense that we don't have in English. That is like, if I were, I mean, we actually, we, well, we do have it. It's just not used. Mm -hmm. um, but like, if I were a cat, I would sleep on. When I see this repetition of... I could, I could, I would. It's talking about, well, in my mind, that elicits frustration uh, and a lack where, and I think that's what you're talking about, which is like, if I, it's sort of like, if I were just gay, <laughs> I could love you, but I'm not. And it's not that simple. Like, I realize that, but, you know, this... This sort of like, you know, this ode to this ode to Lorca before his death, which is interesting because there's like there are, there's an an ode by another Latin American poet that was written after his death that has an entirely different flavor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Elegiac. Yeah, and and martyric. It's really... And um, who, who's that poet? Cesar, Cesar Vallejo. Uh -huh. He wrote a book of poetry ca called um, España Parta de Mi Estacalis, which means um, Spain take this chalice from me. And mm. that's where you find that poem. I'm pretty sure. But I, this frustration you're talking about, yeah, to me, see, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, I, he's grab, I, I feel the love. I feel, it's, it's passion. You know, it's like whenever you're really passionate, you want more. You yeah, know? you know. So it's like I don't feel like he's saying if I were gay. He's like, you know, I am who I am, and I love you from me. You yeah. know. This manly man, as he says at the yes, end. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, and you are who you are. And, oh, my God, you, you just blow my mind, you know. Yeah. With everything you write, with with your laugh, you know, with this 
somehow he keeps calling him a tree. There's four references to trees, or three to trees and a root, you know? It's like, he just sees them as so organic, and it's like Lorca is crying and, and weeping because he feels so much, and he's just like, oh, he's just in admiration. He's, yeah, I guess, I guess I, I felt that, definitely. But I felt this, this dark undercurrent mm-hmm. of envy. Mm. And I think that's the dark side of admiration. Mm. And I, I felt um, distance. Mm, really? A, an unbridgeable distance. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That um, is also sort of the, when you make someone a hero, you you put them at a distance. So, like, where do you feel that distance? I mean, I, I kind of know what you're getting at. We might, but I want to... Well, I just keep wondering as I go through it. This, I keep coming back to this. If I could, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to me that that is like, if I could weep, if I could take out my eyes and eat them, it's showing this frustration where it's just like, you make me want to do these things, <laughs> and I would do them. But I can't. If I could, you know, if I could, I would, but I can't, so I won't. <laughs> and uh-huh. the only recourse he has is to write down um, and describe not just his friend, but the effect that his friend has on him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the effect that his friend has on other people. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was reading it through, and I was just thinking, I'm like, is this a portrait, or is this a, is this a denial? Is this a denial of, like, he's kind of scraping away Lorca and denying who he really is? No, know? no, no. More like, it's like, more like a denial of, how do I, how do I say it? I feel like the poetic voice is both indulging in a pleasure and denying himself that pleasure. Oh, that's so fascinating. So, well, it's like, it's this whole rhapsody on, this is what I would do. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what I would express if I could only express it. I could die for how sweet you are. Mm hmm. So does that is that part of what you're mm-hmm. talking about? Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is like I noticed that line. That line jumped out at me too. I would die for how sweet you are. I would die for how sweet you are. After he's all dressed as a peach tree, you know, right. that whole stanza starts, right? right? With that laugh and which is the peach tree and the laugh are two of my favorite lines. Because I yeah. just see Lorca so much. I was like Oh, I wish I could hear his laugh. Oh, I wish I, I could yeah, hear well, his tell laugh. me about it. I, you know? Yeah. What is, by the way, I mean, I want to get to what you're saying, but hurricaned rice, is in the Spanish, does he turn hurricane into a verb? Uh, a past participle. 
So it's hurricaned, you know, it's the past participle, which is often used as an adjective in Spanish. Oh, okay, because that's a made-up word for us. Right, right. but um, if um, Neruda there is, is sort of drawing on a Latin American um, poetic tradition uh, that emerged... So this is 1935, in the early 20s, with another poet called, um, whose name was Vicente Huidobro. And he, Vicente Huidobro had this whole school uh, called creationism. And his sort of mantra, for lack of a better word, um, was, El poeta es un pequeño dios. The poet is a little god. <laughs> well, okay. His whole poetics was about changing the grammatical functions of words, like making verbs into nouns and, uh, you know, just taking nouns and making them adjectives. But yeah, this idea of taking a word that has a certain grammatical solidity and then mm -hmm. making it fluid. Mm -hmm. And, um, so like, but I do feel like a little God when I do that in poetry. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. I just love it. I'm like, Oh, we Dobro had it spot on. Like he is right. I'm convinced mm -hmm. we Dobro is just like, yeah, like that's what you should be doing. Cause then you don't have to use the effete. Right. Adjective. You can just use a very simple word, but torque it. Right. 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 Exactly. It's like, it's a way to take multiple images and not have to string them together with all of these, like, essentially throwaway words. This, mm -hmm. that, you know, is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a way to abbreviate the poetic discourse so that, yes, you get um, arroz huracanado, which is better than, like, rice that looks like a hurricane. You don't have to keep saying looks like. Yeah. Or even use a met yeah, yeah. Well, that is a metaphor, you know. It is, yeah, it becomes a very compact metaphor. Right, without the like or mm -hmm. the simile, the as, or yeah, right. right. And I, I think I think Neruda is, is very good at that, and that also came out of another Latin American tendency, which is called imagism, which is all about metaphor and all about getting down to the essentials of of image and poetry being about image not being about anecdote it's sneaky though i mean just as an aside i'm really looking every time i'm using metaphor in mm -hmm. my own work and going ooh you know am i trying to like blur a little here am i be like you know metaphor when writing about sex you know Am I trying to step back and not just say it? Well, yeah, <laughs> I think so for this part. But, you know, like, what? sometimes I feel like I'm using, I mean, I love metaphors, and they're just, like, they're great, but I realize sometimes I'm using them to take a step away and not be right there. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Um because metaphor is a translation of reality, right? And, but it's a distancing from reality. 
It's a substituting of one reality with another. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Okay. So a simile would be having one reality intact that is sim- like or similar to another reality that remains intact. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whereas metaphor is, no, we're going to take away that distance. Uh-huh. This reality is that reality. Mm-hmm. And they are um, explicitly entwined. But when you do that, you're, you are taking a step back because you're creating something that's essentially new. So when you fly dressed as a peach tree. <laughs> yeah. So how's that literally translated? It's like, vestido de is um, dressed um, dressed like something, right? Or, or wearing something. How would I... I'm trying to think of how I would translate this. Cuando vuelas vestido yes, please, please. de durazno. Cuando fríes con risa de arroz huracanado. There's a... Well, there's, to me, when I read this line, when you fly dressed as a peach tree, is accurate. It is accurate. But there's something... Is it sort of like in the guise of a peach tree? Yeah. Oh, interesting. So it's less... Dressed up like a peach tree. So it's more more literal, in a but way. It Yeah, but... Even though... <laughs> it's not quite dressed up. Because if it were dressed up... It would be, or in disguise. It's definitely not in disguise. He's not mm-hmm. like hiding out as a peach tree. But um, <laughs> so it's just like in the corner. <laughs> I'm a peach tree. Don't look at me. What? Well, what's interesting to me too is that the the translator also chose peach tree in particular. When, well, there are, there. okay, so there are two words for peach. In Spain, it's melocotón. Ooh, melocotón? Yes, which literally means um, cottony, like fuzzy melon. Mm. Melocotón, right? Melocotón. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. It's, I mean, it's... Algodón is the word for cotton, so it's not quite cotton, but melocotón is just sort of like... It evokes for me the idea of like, like, yeah, like... Fuzzy, fuzziness, <laughs> and, and but in Latin America, peaches durazno. So, um, I keep I keep coming up against these uh, words in in Neruda that are not the Spanish that I learned because he's Chilean. He's speaking. He's writing in in. Latin American Spanish, which to me has a different, um, has a different feel. I don't know. I, I don't know how else to say it, but, um, I noticed a lot of his, um, images consist of noun followed by, noun followed by adjective, which is the typical way you do uh, descriptions in Spanish. Mm-hmm. It's 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 the common way. You always put the adjective after the noun. Okay. 
unless you want to emphasize the adjective, in which case it goes before the noun, right? So I don't know why, but when I was reading this, I went to a really hyper grammatical place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where I was just like, this is not Lorca's language. And like, what is it that's like hitting me funny about this? Mm-hmm. I think what was hitting me funny is the poetic eye is so dominant. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the poems that we've been, we've been exploring by Lorca. Oh, you're right. There is no eye. He's just lost in the storm, um, storm of the work, right? Right. Yeah. There's no, you're, you're right. And I think I like this more directed because mm-hmm. it's, yeah, to me, it's, uh, it's more human, you know, it's more, yeah, it's talking, it's conversation, you know, it's yeah. coming from somebody. And Lorca, you are just out there. Yeah. And yet it's full of I, the poet. The, right. The, the, the poet who's writing. But the, and that was my original question. Is this... Neruda's language or or is Neruda capturing Lorca in the, his choice of imagery and I think what you're saying is no it's very much Neruda it's very much Neruda trying on Lorca's clothes <laughs> okay I I think I mean I see a lot of if I could write like you I would but I can't and this is how I write. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. you know, it's like, if I could write poetry like you, that would be amazing. Right. But this is how I write my poetry. And I'm, it's like, I'm okay with that. Yeah. And I was talking about it with my friend last night. And she was saying, that's what we all do when mm-hmm. we describe our friends or you know, somebody we love, we just use whatever language we can. Because I was saying to her that I, again, my favorite line about dressed as a peach tree, and she said, well, you like that because that's how you see Lorca. Mm. But there's all, and because there's other things here that I don't make sense to me at all. And she was just pointing out, we all have these ways that we see each other that are just part of the elephant, right? Yeah. We're blind and we see part of it. And so she felt like this was Neruda, um, yeah, just blindly stumbling as best he could in his language to create. Yeah. So, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I'd like to claim that as my idea, but that was my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because, you know, you do... Your friend definitely has a point, like, that the poem is about capturing his perception of um, who Lorca is to him. Mm-hmm. Not, and so there's this contrast there between who Lorca is on a personal level to Neruda with the effect that Lorca has on other people, aside from him. Yeah, that's the, what, when I got that little taste of hearing his laugh, or Mm -hmm. like how sweet you are, I was just like, oh my God, he must have been so charismatic. 
oh, people just he must have to be adored a, him. I mean, you see the pictures. Yes, and oh my gosh, oh my gosh, yeah. But you were saying you thought Lord, uh, that Neruda was okay with that. He, he couldn't totally capture him on some level, that it was just him using his own language. Well, you're both saying that, but also feeling the frustration. Yeah. So it's kind of, maybe you see both sides of Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one thing that's wonderful about poetry is that as you talk your way through it, there's, there's never one interpretation. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. just, there's never one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually, it, it's amazing to me to be able to look at this poem and see totally different things like you you come in here and you're just like oh he's in love this is beautiful this is wonderful and i'm like ah actually well not actually i mean it's just more like that was not my take and and so now i'm looking at it and i'm trying to see this trying to see this love we talked a lot about me and my friend talked a lot about that last stanza yeah I am, I would love to go there. Plus, how it is in the original Spanish. Yeah. Um, so you went to mansplaining. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, burn. Like uh-huh. that. Uh, that's harsh because, like, in the original Spanish, así es la vida, Federico. Aquí tienes las cosas que te puede ofrecer mi amistad de melancólico varón varonil. Ya sabes por ti mismo muchas cosas y otras irás sabiendo lentamente. And it's just like, ooh, just, ah, that's harsh. That's the way life is. Well, it's, I mean, it comes after. I want to read the stanza before because there are so many people asking questions everywhere. There is the bloody blind man and the angry one and the disheartened one and the wretch, the thorn tree, the bandit with envy on his back. That's the way life is, Federico. Here you have the things that my friendship can offer you, the friendship of a melancholy, manly man. By yourself, you already know many things, and others you will slowly get to know. It totally changes tone. Yeah. There. The whole, that, that's what I felt. I felt like the whole poem is this orchestra this orchestra of feeling and texture and imagery. And then it just comes down to this little piccolo. And my friend was saying that she felt he was, well, well, I was caught. We were both grappling with manly man. And so I'm interested in what, and she said that that was the original Spanish. Yeah. Pretty much says manly man. Yeah. Um, and she felt like he was kind of saying, oh, you know, you are so many things that I can't be. And, uh, you know, that's the melancholy. Mm. But I felt like he was saying, like, it was a little bit fatherly, but but sweet, you know. I, I didn't feel the mansplaining. Oh, mm. I'm curious. I felt like he was just pulling back from it all. And saying, you know, because he's that beautiful stanza that's actually my favorite stanza in the whole thing about crowning him and talking about him as young. And uh, it's the 83. Come let me crown you, youth of health and butterflies, youth uh-huh. pure 
as a black lightning flash perpetually free. You know, I just love that stanza. And so it's, you know, it's coming back to the youth, the youthfulness of Frederico. And it's so sad because, you know, he only has a year to live, but he's saying at this point, you're going to know many things and other things that you will slowly get to know. And I thought it was others like other people, but she was saying in the Spanish it's ambiguous, whether it's other stuff or other people or... What's, how do you take it? What's interesting is the line is, ya sabes por ti mismo muchas cosas. It's so vague. You know a lot of things. You know, you know, you already know a lot of things on your own. Mm-hmm. And other things, like it's just an elision there. It should be y otras cosas. So it says, you know, you already know on your own. You already know a lot of things. Right, right. And other things. You'll slowly come. You'll come. slowly get to know. I, I think there's there's a sort of um, prefigurement of, of death and martyrdom in those uh, stanzas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which he's doing throughout the poem. But, it, which could be either him respecting the fact that Lorca is always talking about death, you know, and so that's, again, just a tribute as opposed to him really thinking you're going to die, or it could be more literal you you're probably going to have an early death. I don't know which, or maybe it's both. Which, uh, which line are you pointing to about the death part? About death? Mm-hmm. Um, if I could die to see you at night, watching the sunken crosses go by, standing and weeping, because before death's river you weep forlornly, woundedly, you weeping, weeping, your eyes filled with tears, with tears, with tears. It's like... It's like he's seeing how connected Lorca feels. I mean, this is me. I mean, who knows? Mm -hmm. But this is just what it makes me feel, reading Mm -hmm. the poem, which is, I guess, what we all have to do. So I I just feel like he's talking about Lorca's connection, embracing of death, like intimacy with death. Mm -hmm. And again, something he kind of admires, like you're so able to weep, you, you feel so deeply, you see those crosses going by, you see people dying, and, and so that's one. There is actually a lot of Catholic allusion in this poem. But Naruto was, was a communist. And an atheist. And an atheist. Officially, Wikipedia says he was an atheist, so he must have been. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, most communists, like, are, you know, in the 30s were atheists as well. And it, especially with the anti-clericalism, like, running rampant in Spain in the 30s, it's just like, yeah, you know. But, like, the Catholic tradition is so heavy. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. poets trying to write poetry without any infiltration of that Catholic imagery. I find it ironic that there should be these images of angels and crosses. Yes, the angels. um, The feathers. Wounded angels. Cemeteries. Bells. Uh, I don't know how much of this is evoking 
Lorca as it is evoking Lorca and his environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is, you know, this is, this is you, Federico, right? This is you, Federico, and your cultural baggage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is what I see when I read your work. This is what I hear when I hear you speak. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't just hear you. I hear you in relationship to all of these other cultural artifacts or not mm-hmm. just cultural, but like even just like the human being in touch with death, you know, that's, that's humanity. That's met like the existence, you know, I feel like, I feel like Neruda is just like stretching himself and pulling himself in one mm-hmm. direction and another, trying to pin his friend down on paper. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a bad thing, um, mm-hmm. but that he keeps coming back to this if construction, this conditional construction. And that like, that makes me feel like by the end of the poem, that last stanza is a sort of giving up. I think this is Neruda saying, I am the bloody blind man. I am the angry one. I am the disheartened one. I am the wretch. I am the thorn tree. I am the bandit with envy on his back. Uh Uh-huh. And then that's where you get this shift. And then he's like, yeah, so that's how life is, Federico. (laughs) You know, here are all the things I can offer you if you would just take them. But, you know, I'm just like a manly man. And, yeah, you know a lot. But, you know, you're going to know more. I already know it. And I just found it very, like, well, actually. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, sort of pissed me off. Yeah. Well. I, I, I mean, I had this very visceral reaction to that. Yeah. I was like, seriously, Pablo? Like, seriously? You're going to tell Federico? Like, he's... He's offering, he's offering his friendship. There's a sense there of rejection. Wow. I can't put my finger on what it is. Mm-hmm. It's like, this, these are the things that my friendship, here you have, these are the things that my friendship can offer you. The friendship of a melancholy, manly man. It's that can. It's not does. Like, here you have the things that my friendship okay. offers so, you. So again, conditional. Huh? Yeah, it's sort of like, this is what I have to give you. This is what I have to give you if you want it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. It might, like, my spidey sense is going off here, my poetic spidey sense, that this was a very complex friendship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe not one so much of give and take, and um, I don't know of Lorca writing a poem to Pablo Neruda. I could be wrong. A thorn tree is arbol con espinas. Now, 
the next thing I'm asking myself is, okay, so now I'm going to look up espinas and see if the other word for espina in the synonyms dictionary could be uña in in Latin America. Yeah, no, I, I, I was doing that with bandit, looking up in Spanish all the Spanish synonyms. Yeah for bandit yeah because I was wanting to use that word in Spanish in this poem I'm doing and it was really interesting so yeah because I was getting in their little lake of words yes you know that isn't our particular yes group I think yeah if you look up synonyms for bandit in English you're not necessarily going to get highwayman and all these other things that in Spanish you know the salto for there's a highwayman is like saltobore or something. I don't remember. I'm it's a cool word. Bandolero. Bandolero. The highwayman. And I do that in English using the OED when I just want to look up, like there's a word I want to use and rather than look up synonyms, I just look up, they have a feature where you do an advanced search and you see all the uses of that word in English. And so I see, like, for hundreds of years how people have used, you know, uh, copper or something. And it's like, well, is that what I'm really... It's not a good example, because usually it's more of an adjective or a verb or something. And I'm like, is that really what I'm getting at? Let's see all the distinctive ways it's been used. And then I, it usually gets me closer to what I want to say, even though it's not... I'm not looking up other synonyms. I'm just looking up distinctive ways of using that word, and then I think deeper about it. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. 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 My my experience with translation is that it's a similar process. It sounds like it. Yeah. Where it's like you have this sense, this feeling mm-hmm. from the original of what it's trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. And you have to really dive into the word in context to be able to make sure like that what you're bringing over into the other language yes, is carrying is carrying with it that context as well. Right, right. And you want it to be accurate. And you have to sort of circle around the sensation or... You have to, you start out maybe with a general sense mm-hmm. of something that you, it's more of a, a, a bodily feeling mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. like, this is, this is what I want to communicate. And then you, you have a starting point where you mm-hmm. fumble around in the dark. Let yes. Me, let me yes. try this. Mm-hmm. That's not quite it. And then you just go in a spiral circling in on your prey if you uh-huh. want to put it that way, yes, which is, yes, you want to capture feels. that feeling, right? So you're yeah. just stalking it until you arrive at dead center. And it's like, yes, that's the word. That's so interesting because it's kind of like even just working with one language, in a sense, it's translation. Mm-hmm. How do we translate this meaning? Mm-hmm. You know, that like words are just an approximation, right? Anyway, right. of whatever we feel, see think you know do and and then so we're we're grappling in there yeah i like thinking about that little personal anecdote 
so back in high school, I had uh, I had this uh, I had an English teacher who introduced us to poems and poets. I've spoke about this on the first episode. Um, Mrs. Jordan, or then Miss Betzler, she introduced us to poems by poets like Adrian Rich, mm. Sharon Olds, mm-hmm. William Carlos Williams. Did you like Williams. Sharon Olds, by the way? Yes. I yeah, love her she... 3510. Yes, it's one of my favorite poems. She would give us these poems to read, which I, I was 16. You know, it's like way over my head, right? Wow, you, you know? got to read Sharon Olds when she At 16, was 16. Right. Yeah. Writing about her parents. and Yeah. Oh, my God, I would have loved that. It was, it was an amazing experience. But what... And so we would get these poems, these huge, hunky poems, like Diving Into the Wreck by... Uh, Adrienne Rich. She would give us sort of um, discussion questions that went somewhere. They started very like on the concrete end of the spectrum Mm -hmm. and then they ended on the interpretive end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So uh, find a word that evokes X, right? Mm -hmm. That's your your concrete end. Wow. And then... So exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. And then sort of by the end, we would be like, okay, so considering X in the context of the whole poem, how do you interpret X? But And in between those, there were these questions that would just lead us through the poem. And this was high school? This was high school. You lucky duck. So it was, it was awesome. And it also encouraged me to start writing poetry. When I did, it was very much a way to express in image what I was unable to say about my own life mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. prose. And mm-hmm. so I would write these highly abstract things, mm-hmm. just like way mm-hmm. out there that my mm-hmm. friends were just like, dude, I have no idea what you're trying to do here. It's pretty, but right, I have no idea and what what it lacked at that point was um it did not have any contact that uh or reference that other people could latch on to yeah they couldn't they couldn't find their way in because Mm -hmm. it was so personal it was Uh like this is my imagery this is my reality and i didn't throw anyone a bone like I didn't give anyone any clues as to, like, I am talking about my abusive boyfriend. Right. (laughs) I wanted it to remain hermetically sealed and just, like, be on its own. Was it cathartic? Yes. Even in that abstract? Yes, it was. It was. And then, but said that to say this. So a few years later when I was in college, I went back to those old poems and I translated them because I remembered what image stood for what reality I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. So I did these interlinear translations mm-hmm. where I would have Got the original yeah. poem and then I would have my like translation into, well, this was about X, but it mm-hmm. wasn't prose. It was, a, it was, it was two poems just interlaced. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the beginning of your translating career. Really. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know we're getting a little far afield from the poem here, but I 
this is one of our topics is translation. And I, I feel like it's really a privilege to have a window on both languages. Yeah. And I feel so inept at times because I can't bring everything over mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. I translate. It would be full of asterisks and footnotes. And just but be that's like, a but given, right? I yeah. Mean, for any translator? It is. Yeah. It is. And every translator has to make a decision with every word. Mm-hmm. Those decisions are cumulative. I'm trying to tie these two threads together between translation and Neruda being in Spain and you know how they have that saying about British English versus yeah. American mm-hmm. English being, you know, two countries separated by a common <laughs> language or whatever it is. Yeah. But uh, but that tension that cultural tension, I feel, is there. And I would have to comb through it again to just mm-hmm. figure out where it is. Mm-hmm. But I just, oh, I don't know why I had such a dark take on this poem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I really, I really did. I really mm-hmm. had a dark take on it. I'm, it's fascinating to me mm-hmm. that you had almost the polar opposite and I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether that's a function of the translation. In what way? Because I, I read the Spanish first mm-hmm. and had my take and then I, I read the And it was English. immediately a dark take with yeah. the Spanish. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then I read the English and I was like, yeah, sure, okay. I, I wasn't going to... Um, you know, I'm not going to be one of those translators that just is like, ah. <laughs> you know, how could you translate that that way? <laughs> no, it's it's more, I like to interrogate translations and look mm-hmm. for consistency. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, well, you made a choice there that I don't agree with, but maybe in the context of the, the whole translation, mm-hmm. it makes more sense. But I'm just wondering if your reaction is sort of a holistic reaction to the translator's more positive take on things. Oh, interesting. Well, it could be. I, I'm just... That's, yeah, that's could just... be. I think it's also that it's giving me entrance into Lorca. Yeah, yeah. You see? Yeah. It's someone in love with him, and so I'm getting another way to yeah. look at him. Because he's pretty mysterious to me. yes. And this is the first time you're sort of coming across a, a portrait, yes, of him, yes. And and what what I would really like to do at this point is introduce you to uh, Lorca's work, poet in New York. That's a side of uh, you know, Rom- Romancero Gitano is um, all about folklore. It's mm-hmm. all about mm-hmm. the outsider. It's 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 lyrical. It adheres to form. It it strictly adheres to form. You know, there mm-hmm. there's there's not, if I'm correct, I think they're all they're all romances and romancero gitano, right? So he's he Lorca stays with the eight octosyllables. Oh God. I'm getting I'm getting interference from the Spanish. Um, the eight syllable lines, and mm-hmm. he doesn't deviate. Mm-hmm. New York, the poet New York uh, poems are 
um, more Neruda-esque. Um, I mean, it, but it was written in 29. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't published until 36. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's... No, I would really, I would really love that. I would it, love that. If you're, if you're, yeah, if you're interested, it's like, here we have a few views of Lorca from the outside. Mm-hmm. And Lorca from the inside? Wow. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Poet in New York is, is, you know, they talk about the poetic eye, right? The, the yo poetico. But Poet in New York is the poetic eye, as in like, I am seeing. Mm-hmm. And he is observing, and his eyes are wide open. Mm-hmm. And there's none of that sort of rose-tinted glasses filtering. Mostly how, wide open in horror. Yeah. How, how about the actual um, style? Are the lines longer? Yes. Are they, okay, because I'm they're interested not, in that right now just because I'm writing more prose poetry and I'm looking at language that is lines that are longer and and that kind of observation so yeah i'm excited we should dive into give me that a taste one. yeah i there is there are poems that i almost know by heart let's let's not do it right now let's uh, okay don't take it's right on the second shelf i have about eight million copies of it so yeah so i can uh, um you can take that one i have that a digital edition of that one this is my preferred translation this one mm-hmm Oh, yeah, this looks good. Yeah. After you've echado un vistazo and had a glance, and then and let me know which one you want to look at, because I have my favorites, but... And I won't tell you what my personal favorites are. Mm-hmm. You can Maybe you'll be able to discern. Ode to Walt Whitman. <laughs> I'm not saying anything, not saying anything. <laughs> And that's our discussion for today. Anna and Katya have been talking about Ode to Federico Garcia Lorca by Pablo Neruda. And yes, as it turns out, we will be discussing Ode to Walt Whitman from Lorca by Lorca next time. Really looking forward to that episode. (laughs) It's going to be spicy. It's a controversial poem and one I've written about. I can't wait for listeners to hear our conversation. You can find links to the poem and all the other poems that we've been discussing, all the other works that we've been discussing on our podcast, on our website, generationof27.net. You can follow us on Twitter at our Twitter handle, at generationof27. All the music on this podcast is by Bay Area composer and musician Daniel Frias. I'm Mark Pritchard. And guess what? I'm still Katya Noyce. And I'm Anna Hiller. Thanks for listening to Generation of 27, and hasta pronto. Generation of 27.